and turn with me this morning uh, for the second time to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Uh, last week we got started in this new series in, in 1 Peter, and uh, we looked at the first two verses. Actually, we looked at one word <laughs> in the first two verses. Somebody asked me, I think it was Denny, asked me last week, um, Jared, are you setting the pace for this sermon series? If so, you're going to be in 1 Peter when you retire. Um, rest assured, we're going to pick up the pace a little bit. This morning, we are going to um, attempt to cover the rest of verses 1 and 2 of this uh, opening chapter. Remember I said last week we have in these verses three descriptions of uh, Christians in, in the world. Two of them about Christians in, in relation to the world, one in relation to God, and we're going to look at the second two uh, this morning. But just as a refresher, in case you weren't with us last week, we saw that wherever Christians live, they are strangers in this world, foreigners on earth. That means instead of, instead of retreating from the world and seeking to form our own Christian subcultures, and instead of just assimilating in, into the world and becoming like the society around us, as exiles, as foreigners on earth, we live publicly as citizens of a kingdom that is not of this world. And as a result, Christians can expect to be viewed as strangers, sometimes unwelcome, and therefore be called to suffer for their allegiance to Jesus Christ. Well, today we're going to look at the other two uh, descriptions that are to shape how we live. Not only are we strange people in the eyes of the world, this morning we're going to see that we're also a scattered people throughout the world, a, a diaspora people. That's the second thing. And then the third thing is we are a special people because of the grace of the triune God at work in our lives. Foreloved by the Father, sanctified by the Spirit, redeemed by the obedience and blood of Jesus Christ. So let's go ahead and have a look once again at uh, Peter's greeting, 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. Let's hear God's word. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Well, a few weeks ago, I, uh, I mentioned a, a blog by Carl Truman uh, titled, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? You, if you took a look at it, you know it's a, it's a blog commending psalm singing for Christians today. Well, this is last week, uh, Carl had another helpful post online, and the title of it was, Christian dogma drives the Christian life. Christian dogma drives the Christian life. And one of the points he's making 
It's straightforward enough, but it's a principle for the Christian life that we can so easily forget. The point is that Christian doctrine is what makes the Christian life distinctively Christian. (laughs) In other words, we, we need to know Christian truth in order to live faithfully in this world as Christians. We need to know who we are by the grace of God in order to live to the glory of God in this world. And Peter understood that. He understood that. That's why in his greeting to these Christian communities throughout Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, he reminds them of who they are by the grace of God. He's talking here in terms of Christian doctrine. And in light of who they are, he's going to go on to talk to them about how to live faithfully in this world. We saw this last week with the truth that we are exiles in this world. And that truth sheds a lot of light on how we're to live in the world and relate to the world around us, neither assimilating nor retreating, but living faithfully as citizens of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. But Peter gives us another perspective on Christians in relation to the world that I want us to take a look at now, and it's that we are a scattered people. So remember last week, we are strange people in the eyes of the world. This week, we are scattered people. And then thirdly, in a few minutes, we'll consider we are a special people by God's grace. But let's take a look at scattered people or diaspora people. Have a look again at verse 1. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. What's that word? Now, dispersion was originally a technical term to describe the Jewish people after they had been driven out of their homeland by the Babylonians, taken away into exile. Now, this was the practice of empires like the Assyrians and to some extent the Babylonians. When they would conquer people, they would would drive those people out of their homeland and relocate them in other parts of the empire so that you know, the hope was that they would lose some sense of their cultural and religious identity and be a lot less likely to revolt against the powers that be. So why does Peter call these Christians, these Christian communities spread throughout Asia Minor, exiles of the dispersion? Remember the interpretive question that we tried to deal with a little bit last week. Is Peter speaking literally or metaphorically? If he's speaking strictly literally, then people say he's, he's primarily writing to a Jewish audience who have at some point converted to Christianity and they're away from their homeland. If he's speaking metaphorically, then he, he is describing here the character of the whole Christian church, wherever they find themselves. Now, Throughout church history, I mean, we can go back to the early centuries of church history. A lot of ink has been spilled on, is Peter speaking literally or metaphorically as if it has to be one or the other? I told you how my appro- what my approach to 1 Peter is going to be following somebody like Karen Jobes, who's written such a helpful commentary on 1 Peter. Instead of thinking this has to be an either or, literal or metaphorical, I think it can be a both end. 
And so it's possible that Peter's original audience had in fact experienced diaspora, dispersion. And um, not by the Babylonians, but instead by the Romans. And so think about this, by framing this entire letter, first of all, with a reference to diaspora at the beginning, and then at the end, Peter sends greetings from where? Does anyone remember? I was hoping somebody would shout it out, but we're Presbyterians, so we don't talk in service. By, from, from Babylon, right? But he's, Peter wasn't in Babylon. He was speaking metaphorically of Rome. And so by framing the entire letter this way, Peter is teaching Christian communities to interpret their own experience from the perspective of Israel who experienced exile and were scattered. Okay, so while diaspora originally referred to Jews who had been scattered abroad, Peter now applies it to Christian communities consisting of Jews and Gentiles. And so here's one perspective we need to have on the church's status in this world. The church is an exilic community scattered throughout the world. Okay, so let's, ask, let's, let's build on this and ask a practical question. How is this meant to shape our lives and shape the ministry of our church? What does it mean for the church? One thing we need to recognize now in, in the Old Testament, uh, diaspora, being scattered from one's homeland, was the result of God's judgment on his people for breaking covenant. But that, that line of thinking, or that theme, it has nothing to do with Peter's use of the term. There's nothing here to suggest that the church is under divine discipline. Instead, what we need to appreciate is in the New Testament, God's people are scattered for a distinct purpose. And that is to get God's word out to the world. It's to get God's word out to the world. Diaspora, it literally means sown abroad. So the people are scattered among the nations like seeds in a field. Diaspora then is the means of spreading the gospel throughout the nations of this earth. That's an important thing for us to understand. Diaspora is God's means of getting God's word to the nations. We can see this in the book of Acts. Let me give you one example of this. In Acts, God used dispersion to get his word out to the world when the church at that time was still centrally located in Jerusalem. And so you can, if you want to take a look at it, you can turn to Acts chapter 8, verse 1. I'll I'll read it for you. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. We read, There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered. In Greek there is diaspero. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Okay, so just tuck this away at this point. The church in Jerusalem is proclaiming Christ. They're persecuted, so they're scattered. And then they're driven out into Judea and to Samaria. And if you then you jump down from verse 1 to verse 4... You read these words. Now, those who were scattered, diaspero, went about doing what? What did they go about doing? They went about, Luke 
well, the ESV translates it, they went about doing the very thing that led to their being scattered in the first place. They went about preaching the word. Now, what Luke actually says in the Greek, I, I love this phrase, they went about gospeling the word. That's what, they, that's what Luke actually says. They went about gospeling halagos. They went about proclaiming Jesus Christ. And so think about this, a scattered people sowing the seed of the word among the nations. And the logic we see here is this, resistance to the gospel led to the scattering of God's people, which in turn led to the spread of the gospel, which led to new disciples and new churches being planted. You see, dear friends, nothing on earth can thwart Christ's promise that he will build his church. And so while we have not experienced you know, physical dispersion, nevertheless, I think First Peter is teaching us to see ourselves as part of God's diaspora people throughout the word, world for this very purpose, to gospel the word, to proclaim Jesus Christ, to proclaim in Peter's terms the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So, we are exiles, strangers here, foreigners on earth, Peter says. But that can't mean, can it, that therefore we should retreat and back down and circle the wagons and keep the, the world uh, at a distance from us. Nor can it mean that we should seek to just blend in and be like the world as much as possible. No, we are called to live as foreigners, yes, but as citizens of another kingdom who have a message for the world. Dear friends, we have good news for the world. And we're here to sow the seed of the word of God. And so, like the people Jeremiah wrote to in exile, you remember this passage when Jeremiah is writing to um, his brethren who have been exiled and hauled off to Babylon, what his instruction is to them. Like them, we're to settle down in what to us is a foreign land and live in Babylon. We buy houses and live in them. We plant gardens and eat. We, we marry and have families we seek the welfare of the city. We settle down. We make home away from homeland. And we go about gospeling the word as we do so. We are strange in the eyes of the world because we're resident aliens. We're scattered throughout the world because God's people are God's means, his creaturely means for spreading his word to the nations. But then thirdly, Let's consider this, we are a special people by God's grace. Take a look again at verse 1. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Okay, now let's, let's take all of this and put it together once again. Our calling in the world is to live as foreigners on earth because we don't share the same values and commitments as the society in which we live. So Peter's saying you can count on suffering for Jesus' sake. 
And we are a scattered people spread throughout the world so we can proclaim the word of God to a lost and dying world. Now you've got to stop and ask the question, how on earth are we going to do that? What resources are available to the people of God to live faithfully as strangers here on earth with a message to a world that in large part will stand in opposition to that very message? Well, the answer to that question is right here in Peter's greeting to us. With respect to the world, exiles of the dispersion, but with respect to God, chosen by him. And grammatically here, in the Greek, what follows modifies or explains what we most fundamentally are, a people chosen by God, and here are the qualifiers, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So again, ask the question, what is it that enables us to live in this way as foreigners on earth who bear witness to Jesus Christ even when we are called to suffer for it? And Peter's answer, it is, it is the work of each person of the Godhead the Father's electing grace, the Son's obedience and shed blood for his people, and the Spirit's sanctification setting us apart, giving us new life in Christ. That's the grounds. See, the work of the persons of the Godhead working together as one are both the source and the sustenance of our calling to live as scattered exiles in this world. In other words, it is by God's grace alone that we have this identity and are able to live by it. And so let's unpack this, though, in um, each, each turn here. Look at what he says first about election. We are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. I'll stop there and ask the question, what does it mean to be elect or chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father? It does not mean that God chose us to be his on the basis of his foreknowledge that we would choose him. That is not what it means. And yet, sadly, that's what a lot of people think it means, that God chose me because he knew I would choose him. Ask the question, who's the real initiator there of that relationship? It's, it's me, isn't it? God knew that we would choose to be his people, and so he put his stamp of approval on that and elected us to be his people. Frankly, it's nonsense. And it completely muddles what the Bible means by the Father's foreknowledge of us. And the reason I get so worked up about it is because it robs God's people of the assurance that God the Father wants his children to have. So what does it mean? Notice first that it is people God foreknows, not choices or actions. 
And you may be aware that when the Bible talks about God foreknowing his people, it means more than merely knowing things about them. It means knowing them in a personal, intimate relationship of love. See, in the Bible, as Pastor Dave recently reminded us, if you can remember, in the world of Scripture, the language of foreknowing is a love word, not merely a knowledge word. And that's a wonderful thing to think about. This is the word Peter uses to fundamentally define who we are. We are a people foreloved by God from eternity. Dear friend, how do you know that God's love for you will never, ever stop or cease? Boss has this great statement. He answers that question and says, you can know that God's love for you will never end because it never began. And so if you're a Christian, ask yourself the question, why? Why am I a Christian? Why are you a Christian? And the answer of the gospel is because God loved you with an everlasting love. Before you were born, before the foundations of the earth, it was the eternal purpose of his will to love you. And this free divine choice was not based on God foreseeing that you would choose him. And so he elected you and aligned his purposes with your free decision. No, the truth is that he saw that you never would choose him dead as you were in your trespasses and sins. But because of the great love with which he has loved you, he chose you in Christ Jesus, and in time he called you through the gospel of his Son, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Second, Peter says, we are elect in the sanctification of the Spirit. Now ask yourself another question. When you became a Christian, how did it happen? How did it happen? When you became a Christian, how did it happen? And the answer of the gospel is that it happened by a mighty, sovereign work of the Lord and giver of life, the Holy Spirit, who came to you as, as one of those rotting bones in the valley of dry bones, and he breathed life into you, and you stood up on your feet Alive again in Christ. See, the Spirit of Christ came. And as you heard the gospel, he generated in your heart saving faith and thereby united you to Jesus Christ. And in that moment, you were definitively set apart by God, for God. In such a way that the mastery and dominion of sin in your life was shattered forever. And then began the process of a lifetime. The war of a lifetime. Sometimes, sometimes slow and painful. Sometimes unnoticed. The work of inner change and transformation by which the Holy Spirit is at work in me and in you. To enable you to put sin to death. And to live to God and be conformed more and more to the image of God, Jesus Christ himself. See, to be a Christian is to be someone set apart by God the Spirit according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in God the Son. 
And then third, here's the third qualifier. You are elect. Now here's the, the way the ESV translates it. For obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. Okay. First thing we've got to recognize is that the consecrating, sanctifying work of the Spirit has a distinct goal. He does not just bring us into some sort of, you know, generic spirituality that is so common and popular today. He brings us instead into the new covenant founded on the basis of the obedience and blood of Jesus Christ. And you remember last week uh, when I said Peter, he, he repeatedly uses Old Testament terms to define God's people today, you know, teaching here the solidarity of the people of God in the Old and New Testament. And here's another example of it. I wonder if you, I wonder if you see it. The phrase translated for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood is an allusion to the establishment of the covenant that was made at Mount Sinai in Exodus 24. As Israel heard the law and pledged their obedience and the blood of the covenant was sprinkled upon them by Moses. What's the trouble? The trouble is Israel failed to keep their word, did they? They failed to obey. They were not able to keep the law. But you see, in Jesus Christ, a better covenant has been established for the people of God. A covenant relationship that has as its grounds the perfect obedience of Christ and his shed blood, which makes us clean. You see, full provision in the obedience and blood of Jesus Christ. Now, some of you might be staring at your copy of the, at least the ESV translation of this text and saying something's not jiving here. So let me do some explaining because the ESV makes an interpretive decision when translating the Greek here. I th- actually, actually think it's I think it's debatable. The ESV translating committee saw the illusion here to the covenant made at Sinai in Exodus 24, where the people pledged their obedience and the blood of the covenant was sprinkled upon them. And so they they translated the verse to correspond to that covenant arrangement, where the obedience is the people's and the blood is the blood of the covenant. So so they saw the the illusion and they, I, I, I think unhelpfully translate the verse to miss Peter's real point. Peter's real point is, yes, there's an allusion here to Exodus 24, but the grounds of this covenant, covenant made in Jesus Christ, is Christ's obedience and Christ's blood. So the way the ESV translates it, if you look at it, it reads, we are elect for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. You see, in that reading of the text, we are chosen for obedience and for sprinkling with the blood of Christ. So the obedience is ours and the blood of Christ is is his. And we should say, okay, it's certainly a biblical truth that that election, God choosing his people, has ethical implications, right? Paul deals with this in 
his Ephesians 1 doxology when he talks about how we have been chosen in him that we should be holy and blameless before him. And so that's certainly a biblical truth. But another way of making sense of the Greek grammar here, which I think is actually the right way to understand it, is to see that both the obedience and the sprinkled blood belong to Christ. See, with the ESV's reading, the covenant relationship would be just like the one made at Sinai with Israel. But Peter says, I think we are chosen for the obedience of Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Chosen that his obedience, his perfect record, and his shed blood might be applied to us. See, both the obedience and sprinkled blood are his, and this is the ground of our covenant relationship with God. His life, a life that we could never, ever live as sinners. It's his record of spotless, flawless righteousness, as well as his willing, self-giving at the cross, atoning for sin. You see, together, this is what we have, brothers and sisters. He's made full provision for every single one of his people. However guilty you may be, however dark and deep the stain of sin, because of Jesus Christ today, you can be clean and you can be robed in a perfect righteousness and stand before your heavenly Father unashamed. Because of the obedience and the blood of Jesus Christ. So think about what all this means, okay? Let's come back to what Peter is saying here in his greetings. God's people are elect exiles of the dispersion. Foreigners spread throughout the earth, often seen as a bunch of weirdos and slandered for their faith. And Peter is going to say, openly and honestly to Christians throughout this letter. Yes, it is going to cost you to walk in humble, faithful obedience to King Jesus. There may be social costs. You might lose friends. You might be disowned by family members. There could be economic costs. Maybe you don't get into the school that you wanted to go to. Um, Maybe that job opportunity isn't opened up to you. Maybe you can't get promoted because of your commitment to being a follower of Jesus Christ. There's going to be a cost, but Peter's saying that doesn't mean, it does not mean that you ought to retreat, circle the bandwagons, and create your own Christian subcultures. Nor does it mean that you should just assimilate and blend in um, as much as you possibly can. Your calling as citizens is to live as people from another world scattered throughout this one, and to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. So, how are we going to do that? Right? Given the cost, how are we going to do this? Where do we find the resources to do something so costly that comes with such risk? Here's Peter's answer. In a nutshell, first, know that you are loved. Know that you are foreloved by God the Father. You are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Or loved with an everlasting love. Isn't isn't that wonderful? 
believer in Jesus, you are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and you are utterly, absolutely secure in the grip of his love. So whatever happens, whatever people say of you, whatever trial you experience, nothing can ever separate you from the love of God the Father in Christ Jesus. That's the first word Peter has for us. Second is you are elect in the sanctification of the Spirit. In other words, God the Holy Spirit will never give up on you until the work is done. Because God always finishes what he starts. He who began a good work in you, he will be faithful to bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God always, always brings to completion what he sets out to do. Think of it this way, okay? There is not a single Christian who has ever lived who was brought forth from death into life or who was called out of darkness into light who beginning the Christian life didn't finish it. Not one, not one. The Spirit will sanctify you. He will make you more like Jesus. And yes, it's going to be It's going to be hard going. It's going to be tough. It's going to feel like sometimes two steps forward, one step back. But he will not give up on you. And so you can persevere. That's the second word from Peter. The third is that you are elect for the obedience and the blood of Jesus Christ. I mean, what what is the great anchor Of our assurance in the Christian life. Isn't it the words of Jesus? It is finished. That the work is done. That by his obedience. And his shed blood. You are forgiven and cleansed. And you are counted right. Before God. Righteous in his sight. Not on the basis of anything you have done. But on the basis of the perfect life and obedience. Of God's son. Nothing can change that. You are his. And you've been bought with a price. Uh, Just uh, recently. I was reading about. um, uh, The the building of the the Golden Gate Bridge. Some of you might know a thing or two about this. It's a fascinating story. Uh, When they started out. they, They didn't have any safety equipment. Um, for the workers who were building the bridge, and until 23 people fell and died. So it's just a different world than, than the one we're living in, right? 23 people die. Hey, don't you think we should do something about this? And so they, they put out a safety net right, underneath, something like a net you'd see you know, during a trapeze act or something like that. And uh, others fell, but no one died. Everybody was saved from, from death. Now, what was interesting, though, is those who were overseeing the building project recognized that as soon as the net was placed there, that production went up 25%. Now, why is that? Why were the workers more productive once there was a safety net? It was because, because they knew they were safe. Because they knew they were safe. So, brothers and sisters, here's the point. You are safe 
in the love of God. You are safe in his purpose to sanctify you by his spirit until the work is done. You are safe in the, by the redeeming work of Jesus who obeyed and who bled to secure your everlasting salvation. And you see what that means. You are safe and so you can live for God in this dark world. You are safe and so you can give your life for him. Yes, it's going to be hard and long and difficult and full of challenges, but you can do it with confidence and boldness even. Why? Because you are kept safe by the triune God. One of the things maybe to tuck away in your mind during the week is to just simply remember the Lord has me. The Lord has me. And so may God help us to live with this vision laid out for us here in 1 Peter 1, 1 through 2. Out of this absolute security of being loved by God the Father, sanctified by God the Spirit, redeemed by the obedience and blood of the Son, we are called to live as exiles in this world who proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so I want to I end this morning simply with a prayer request. Would you please make it a matter of urgent prayer as we walk through 1 Peter together, promising that we'll get through before I retire. Make it a matter of urgent prayer that God would shape us by his word so that with a renewed and deepened willingness, we would serve our Savior in this place where God has called us for his glory and the fame of his great name. Let us live together, dear brothers and sisters, as elect exiles of the dispersion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word and we, we pray that you would write these truths upon our hearts, that we are elect exiles of the dispersion, strangers in this world, entrusted with a message that the world so desperately needs to hear. Strengthen us with the knowledge that we are safe, safe in your love, safe in your sanctifying work in our lives, and safe because of the obedience and blood of Jesus Christ. So free us from fear and enable us to bear witness to you as a holy nation, kingdom of priests in this world. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.